This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome to Radio Therapy and thanks for joining me, Dr Mal Practice, that's me, for an hour of health and medicine. I am joined by our regular panellists, Dr. Nicolas Carr, GP extraordinaire and urbane man about town, and uh, Nurse EpiPen, the Queen of the Spleens at the Victorian Spleen Registry. Today on the show, we have two fascinating guests. I am so excited, feeding him, to, uh, to have these two great thinkers on the show. First up is Christopher Cordner, who is an associate professor in the philosophy program at Melbourne Uni. At parties, the only cooler job to say you have than a prof in philosophy is a professor of jazz. Maybe Chris plays an instrument. Well, you're going to have to listen to his segment on simple goodness to find out if he can carry a tune. And he'll be giving us his reflections on how to lead an ethical life. Plus, he'll be telling us about what actually happens when you're an ethicist on a national committee. Hmm. Brock Bastian also happens to work at Melbourne Uni. He's an associate professor too. Will the coincidences never cease? Now, Brock has some very, very, very interesting advice for us along the lines of not all pain is bad pain and a bit of suffering can be good for you. Now, obviously, there are qualifications and limitations to the notions, but it is an intriguing one and a useful paradigm to perhaps understand adversity and pain. All this plus some music from the Dufresnes and the latest in medical news. In fact, why don't we get into the news right now? Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case loving you. No pills gonna kill my ill. I got a bad case loving you. <laughs> Ooh! Just kill the music. See, see what happens when I panel? It is terrible. Uh, now, in the studio, we have Nurse EpiPen. Hello, Nurse EpiPen. Good morning, listeners and Mal. Queen of Spleens. Have you ever been called Queen of Spleens? Yeah, yeah. The Spleen oh, Queen. But it's the Australian Spleen. Sorry, Queen I, Australia. I didn't realise you'd gone federal. Uh, no, yeah. Dinkum. Well, it's, 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 we're based in Victoria, but anybody around the country can access our information My on our apologies. website. My apologies. Queen of Spleens. Yeah. And Dr. Nicholas Carr, looking like a Gap model, freshly back from holiday. Where were you? A rather sweaty Gap model <laughs> who cycled in here. I was in Sri Lanka. Actually, I'm very glad we've got an ethicist and philosopher with us today because mm. I have a major ethical conundrum to put to him. Ooh. Because when you're in Sri Lanka, you go on all these walks into mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Buddhist mm-hmm. monasteries and they tie little things around your wrist as a blessing. And now I'm back in Australia. I've got these pieces of string around my wrist. And I don't know whether to keep them on in respect for the Buddhist culture that tied them in the first place and risk looking like a complete dork at work as a faded yeah. hippie with these pieces of string. Whether I should cut them off and risk bad karma for the rest of my life. Well, I'd, be keeping, so I need I'd some, be keeping them on. I need yeah, advice. Keep them on. That's, keep why, on. that's why they're still there. I don't dare take the risk. Do you know what this actually brings to my mind with ethics? Because isn't ethics, and we'll ask our ethicist, isn't ethics the application of morals? To a to a particular problem, yeah. So why don't we vote on ethics? Like, why not just have a, a like a, a computerized you know voting system where you ask a question and like I've got a que- like you've got a question, you can put it up to ethics.com and you get two hundred people to vote yes or no. The important thing about ethics is it's a really practical topic. It's about they say science is what can we know, religion is what can we hope, but ethics <laughs> is what must we do. 
So it's actually about action. And people don't realise, they think of ethics as some sort of ivory tower philosophy, but it's not. It's about our choices. It's about our actions. Man, you've always put things so well. Now, one reason you're on the show, apart from, you know, your great philosophical views on the world, is you, you've done some research and you're going to tell us about what's happened... Where's all the codeine gone, man? So, yes, we've got Brock coming on later talking to us about pain and yeah. perhaps pain is not all bad. And maybe it's perfect timing because the the rescheduling of codeine, which uh, people who never use the stuff may not realise, codeine is an ingredient in some of the painkillers that used to be over-the-counter, things like Nurofen Plus. Uh, the plus uh, means codeine for most of these things. And mm-hmm. there might be 8 milligrams, sometimes 10 or even 15 milligrams of codeine. Codeine works because it's metabolised in the liver to morphine and a lot of people don't realize it is actually morphine as a pro drug what so it's a very potent opiate that we have up until february the first this year been able to buy over the counter and the powers that be realized that a lot of people were misusing this stuff they were buying large quantities of these medications so have now rescheduled them so if you want anything with codeine then you have to go to the doctor and get a prescription but hang on is that not a bad thing now because it's going to increase the number of the time the waiting time to go see your doctor it's going to have like consultations that are two seconds long which could have done really quickly why not just give it to the pharmacist to decide so a really really good question why not have pharmacists Uh, patrolling this a little more in a little more detail lots of very important committees sat on this it was a unanimous agreement between ama and recg and all sorts of other Mm -hmm. important colleges Uh, i think we have to wait and see what the effects are going to be so far not a single patient has come to me and asked for a script for coding. Well, it's only been three days. Yeah, and that's because they stockpiled before it all happened. <laughs> and you're quite right, Epi, because I actually went to a couple of pharmacies to ask them prior to February the 1st what they thought was going to happen. I looked at the shelves. They were empty. The coding-containing shelves were bare. Dinkum. So, look, some of the arguments, and you've just touched on them, is that, that the codeine... It probably wasn't the best treatment for people's aches and pains in these tablets. I mean, what do you think of that as an argument for removing it from shelves? So lots of arguments for removing it. One is it's not the best treatment. Mm -hmm. The other is that people die from overdose of codeine. Uh, But what people don't realise is that while codeine is a culprit, we have around about 60 deaths annually in Victoria from codeine overdose. Uh, It's certainly not the main culprit. The the drugs that actually kill more people than codeine and and even the opiates like OxyContin and Endone is on, the drugs that kill more people are the benzos, the Valiums, the sleeping tablets, that sort of thing. They actually are our biggest killer, not on their own. It's very hard to kill yourself with those on this when people mm. mix them mm. with alcohol and things like the opiates and codeine. So, but they're not over the counter. We're talking about Correct. codeine and things like that that are over the counter. So this is one reason codeine has been rescheduled to put it in the same category where you have to go to a doctor to get that prescription. Right. Um, I, I still find it astounding that we were selling codeine over the counter when so many countries weren't. Like, I think we're one of the few countries that were, weren't we? Like, I think in uh, the States you can't get it over the counter, is that right? So there are other countries which yeah. have it as prescription only, but there are plenty of countries where you can buy it over the counter. It's always been seen as gentle, partly because it doesn't have the name morphine in there. The other thing people don't realise is around about 15% of the population do not have the right enzymes in their liver to metabolise this stuff, and it does nothing at all. So codeine only works for the majority, around about 85%, who can actually convert it into morphine. But there's a decent percentage, about one in seven people, who actually can't do it anyway, and it does nothing. You might as well just take a Panadol. Really? I didn't know that. So, Nick, um, how are you uh, foreseeing patients coming to the clinic and now with pain and wanting some analgesia? 
So there, there are different groups of patients. For most doctors, they'll be the patients we've known for a long time who we didn't necessarily know used panadine, let's say, which is paracetamol plus codeine, to treat migraine. It may not be the best treatment for migraine, but for that person, it's what works. And if those people come into a doctor that they know and say, well, I need now to get a prescription for this medication, most GPs aren't going to have a problem. It might give us an opportunity to talk about better options because there may be more appropriate treatments. But most people are not going to say no to a patient they've known well asking for a sensible treatment like that. The difficulty is going to be when patients go to doctors who they don't know mm. uh, and mm. that's going to happen quite a lot and this has always been a bugbear of mine I don't believe that doctors should prescribe potentially dangerous drugs to patients that they don't know. For the first time I think you, you've often yeah, said that. I, yeah. I, I, I believe that the, that little word N-O is really really important and it's the word I use to anyone who asks me for an addictive drug when I've never met them before. Yeah yeah. Um, now, was I talking to a pharmacist about a week ago and they were saying there was this thing called real-time prescribe... Prescription uh, monitoring. Prescription yes. monitoring. So basically, you know, if you buy a script, if you get a script with some potentially harmful ta- uh, medication in it, that that goes onto a registry and any pharmacist the next time uh, she uh, wants to dispense it, she can look that up and see if you've had it recently. Correct. And so that you can look for you know, doctor shopping and for hoarding of medications and so forth. What's happened to that? Because I thought that was a brilliant idea. The system that's been in place in Tasmania for a number of years. That's right. So that's the right. DORA system, so that's called right. in Tasmania, yeah. which is a real-time prescription monitoring service in that particular locality been proven to be very successful. The Victorian state government pledged, I think it was $30 million to implement one here in Victoria, beginning of this year, twenty uh, sorry, middle of this year, 2018. Yeah. Yeah. So it's supposed to be coming in here in Victoria. And the federal government have put in, I think it was only about $15 million for a national system, which I can't quite work out that maths, but anyhow. So we are moving towards that. The coroner has been calling for a real-time prescription monitoring service in this country for years and years and years because of the number of people who die from our prescription medications, which is a greater number of people than the road toll. Yeah. I, now I remember where I was. I was talking to the drug and alcohol team at my hospital and they were talking about the DORA system in... Um, Tasmania. In Tasmania. Do you hope we can bring it in in a sensible fashion here in Victoria? EpiPen. Uh, Nick, could you just repeat that about road toll and... Because I think this is the key element to this change in uh, prescribing habits. It, it's an extraordinary figure, isn't it, that uh, we kill 300 or so people on the roads and we kill more than that with our prescription medication. Now, I do some work with a woman who has been a prescription medication misuser. She misused drugs for over 30 years. She gets very cross with me when I talk about this death rate because she says for every person who dies, there are 20 people like me whose lives were destroyed by these drugs and we don't appear on the statistics. Mm. So don't forget, for everyone we talk about who's died, there are dozens more who are suffering the consequences of long-term prescription drug misuse. Huge problem. Indeed. Thank you uh, so much, Dr Nick. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Good morning, listeners. This is Epi Penn here, and I have the greatest privilege of introducing Associate Professor Chris Cordner, who is the Head of Philosophy at Melbourne Uni. He teaches philosophy at an undergraduate level and supervises PhD students. He also teaches professional and applied ethics. We're going to have a bit of a chat about ethics. And for the last 10 years, he was, or 
or 10 years ago, he was um, Australian Health Ethics on the Health Australian Health Ethics Committee as a principal committee of the NH and MRC, which is a National Health and Medical Research Council. He was for many years on the Royal Melbourne Hospital Clinical Ethics Committee, and his main interest is philosophy on ethics and moral philosophy. He's writing a book on simple goodness, which sounds fantastic. And given that I have a family connection with Chris, I just wish to also let you know that he's a die-hard Melbourne supporter, having a father who won a Brownlow medal for the club, and now he has a daughter playing in the AFL Women's League for the lovely Melbourne team. Anyway, Chris, it's such a privilege to have you on the show, and... Can we talk about how you got into philosophy or where, what's, what's, how, how did this all start for you? Thanks, Ben. Uh, I should just say I'm, I'm very relieved to be able to say I'm, not, I'm no longer head of the uh, philosophy department. I was some years ago, but uh, <laughs> thankfully... Uh, relieved. That's <laughs> off my plate, yes. Um, I got into philosophy originally when I was still at school and I had a friend who was far more uh, widely read and wise than I was at that age who was... Uh, obsessed with philosophy when I was 14 or 15. He'd read um, Sartre and Camus and all the Russian novelists. And uh, and so I used to tag along uh, uh, on his coattails. We caught the same train together. Uh, and that stimulated my interest in philosophy. And uh, uh, one thing just followed from another. I'm not sure... Uh, if there ever was a day when I said, now I'm going to be a philosopher, I can't remember it. It just uh, evolved because my interest in it uh, remained and grew. Um, and, and to this day, it's still, uh, it's still something I find uh, absorbing and fascinating. Um, so I studied at a university at Melbourne and then uh, overseas and been around the traps a bit and, and now back at, back at Melbourne still doing what I love. You, you've travelled to Prague recently. What's what's happening there? Uh, I'm involved in... I've been to Prague a number of times in recent years to uh, conferences and uh, other events, and I'm now uh, involved in a, in a recently established um, ethics centre in uh, uh, the city of Pardubica, about 100 kilometres from, from Prague. I'm a, an international consultant at the centre, so I'll be spending... Uh, visiting there a bit in, in uh, the next few years when I can to participate in, in its projects. It's, it's got a large grant from the Czech government. Um, we were one of many applications and lucky enough to, to get the nod. One, one, of our, one of the things that I think helped us get the, uh, be successful in the, in the bid um, was that we put in our project a, um, uh, one of our, our themes for discussion was the relation between simply being Czech, being European, being a human being, being, being a member of the, of the wider world. And in the, the context of the EU with its, its Brexit and, and the turbulence of the current state of the EU, these questions about the relation between personal identity, national identity and human identity are increasingly um, uh, topical and important and, and our, our commitment to reflecting in a cross-disciplinary way. It won't just be philosophers but involving uh, um, uh, all sorts of other people from other disciplines uh, was something the, the, uh, that was found to be an attractive uh, feature of our application. So that's one of its, 
its main, do you main need teams. A, do you need any doctors on the panel? <laughs> uh, there, are no, there are no doctors yet in the centre, but there are doctors who will be involved in our discussions. So available. You're on, you're on the list, Mel. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell us, because we've got, a, you know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Tell us, you know, when you're reflecting on what makes an ethical life or what I mean it's a big topic obviously but what are the sort of the key things that you think about when you think you know what what is a simple good life okay well it is as, as Epi Penn mentioned I, I'm writing a book with the working title of simple goodness um, one of the things behind that title is the thought that uh, philosophy but not only philosophy I think broader elements of the culture of tended to at least be at risk of losing sight of the what to me is the the center of gravity the fundamental mm-hmm. linchpin of of ethics which is one person being present to another person mm-hmm. um, we talk for understandable and good reasons of of the need for rules mm-hmm. law principles institutions um, after all we have medical ethics mm-hmm. as a as an essential um, uh, aspect of our thinking about the practice of medicine both clinically and in a research context and uh, it's very important when you get people of unequal power relating to one another then there are going to be abuses of that, that power and just as it were, left to their own devices there will be injustices of profound kinds mm-hmm. unless we have such mm-hmm. um, uh, medical guidelines um, that's a regrettable necessity, I would say. Uh, simple goodness, I think, as a matter of one person's presence to another, uh, is that to which ethics always must keep returning. How do you mean present? Do you mean that when I'm talking to you that I should be 100% focused on you and you're the kind of principal thing in my mind? Is that what you mean? Or? That's that, that at a very simple level is, yeah. is what's at issue. Um, it's it's we often think we're listening to other people when we're not really, and and when people are in power differentials yeah. in relation to yeah. one another, nothing is easier yeah. than to not really be yeah. listening when you when you claim you are. Yeah. How many people How have true. found themselves in a doctor's surgery, let's say? Yeah. Uh, even I, who could hardly uh, come from a medical family, um, uh, I've been around medical people yeah. all my life, I've found myself, as it were, tongue-tied and silenced in the yes. presence of doctors because of the, this is the person with the knowledge, who then, it's very hard for that person to be aware of what it's like to be the other yeah. person in that, yes, kind of, so that kind of interaction. So bringing, the, bringing the, the, the context back to one in which the power differentials play as little role as they possibly can in the interactions between people enables each to be present to yes. the other, fully present to the other, and that's, that's, that's the basis from which things can then hopefully proceed in a, in a, in a more human and, and, and ethically uh, purer way. Yeah. Chris, um, I can be 100% present when with you, but my focus could be on lifting your wallet out of your back pocket. So there's, there's more to it than just the presence, isn't there? There, there has to be something about intent. Uh, yes, well, if you're focused on my wallet, you're not fully present to me. You're, you're attending to my wallet rather than to me. Um, uh, so it's... it's, it's uh, it, Levinas, Emmanuel Levinas, the famous French philosopher, talks about being claimed by the face of another. 
Um, uh, and by the word face, he doesn't necessarily mean the face. He thinks you, the back of someone's neck can present itself to you as the face, in his sense of the face, but it's an attentiveness to the claim upon you of another person in the situation so that you are as, as fully responsible as possible to what you find is required of you in responding to that. He also says, because I, 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 don't, I don't want to distort this, mm -hmm. but let me say, give you a couple of quotes for, sure. before I come back to the thought. Um, uh, a, a philosopher whom I greatly admire, Cora Diamond, an American woman philosopher, says at one point, the root of morality is loving attention to things or individuals imagined or perceived. She says that's the root of morality, OK? Uh -huh. the, the plant is not just the root. Uh -huh. A lot grows out of the root and all the, the things we think of as the institutional requirements and needs for ethics, laws, principles, guidelines and so on are also important. But they're important only as efflorescences from the root uh, and bringing ethics back to that root. Think of, Take a, a, a particular... Example, think of recent debate about gay marriage, mm -hmm. OK? Um, uh, one can frame what's at issue in that debate in all sorts of ways about people's rights, uh, for example, about the importance of equality. Mm -hmm. uh, and those are, those are, those are uh, interesting ways of mm -hmm. framing. I'm more inclined to think that the, the most fundamental framing is what's at issue in, in denying... Mm -hmm. the right to marry of gay people. Well, it's a, it's a refusal or a failure to take seriously the depth to which mm -hmm. their sexuality mm -hmm. in relation to others goes in their lives. Mm -hmm. And a denial of a public acknowledgement of that mm -hmm. is a kind of denial of respect mm -hmm. for the people in question. Yeah. So yeah. there there is... There is it, it's, in that case, it's not my presence to this individual whom I know... It's a, I, this, but it's a matter of my being able to be fully in a position such that I will fully acknowledge the reality of this other person yeah. by not denying that kind of respect for the depth to which sexuality goes in their life. So even there, that de the a view about that mm -hmm. debate can be brought back to the importance of enabling one person to be fully present to another mm -hmm. person. And the thing I love about the quote you gave us was that it was loving attention. And I guess that's, uh, that's the intent that I was trying to get at. Is right. That, and that's, okay. uh, that speaks to that, that yes. the attention has to have a, a, an underpinning uh, of positivity, of loving. Yes. I, I would... This is... We, we, <laughs> we could take this debate down a, a, I myself think that the concept of attention... After all, attention is linked with attending and attending... Is I attended the meeting. I was present at the meeting. It's how the intention plays out in being present to another that really matters because a doctor can say or another professional can say, a teacher at the university can say, oh, yes, my intention was to, to really te teach that class well. Uh, and they may nevertheless be condescending or uh, supercilious in the way in which they carry out or manifest that intention. What crucially matters is how that intention translates into a full presence to yeah. those with whom they're engaging in the, uh, in the context. If I could just one the other quote I was going to mention was from Simone Weil, uh -huh. extraordinary French woman. It would be lovely to have a whole program 
uh, on who said, the simplest way to become invisible is to be poor, she said. Uh, Very profound statement. Do we think that we, as it were, can't see those who are poor? Of course we don't. We see them. But do we really see them? Do we really... Are we really allowing ourselves not to be uh, blinded by the differences in our position yeah. to others. Now, that's, a, that's a, perhaps an extreme uh, example, but that question of what it, what it is that can come into play and how we respond to others that prevents us from being fully responsive yeah. to them uh, is a serious question for everybody in every aspect mm-hmm. of, of their life. And so, so I, don't want to under, I don't want to underplay the importance of structural, social and mm-hmm. political mm-hmm. Uh, issues in how we organise and order our relations with others that bring into play the importance of laws, the importance Mm -hmm. of radical and profound social change. Uh, But that, to me, is against the background of the inescapable requirement upon us to be fully present to others. So I've got a small example of when you said poor people or... So my father was an eminent surgeon at the Children's Hospital and one thing when we used to, as little kids, go around with him and he would talk to everybody, the lift person, the person in the cafeteria, that he would acknowledge every human being that he came in contact with and that's engendered this really respectful thing for human beings for me, health and the health and and sense going into the health profession. But role modelling... You know, do you think we're getting as much these days? Is are we connecting with our kids and being good and showing them role modelling and goodness? Is that? Well, we we I I I, I don't know how to <laughs> readily I want to generalise about that, but I am reminded of uh, an occasion that was very important for me in my own relation to my children when I was um, uh, coaching my son's football team at a at a. Uh, suburban club many years ago uh, and my assistant coach had a uh, two sons one of whom was playing in the team and the other of whom had a severe physical and psychological uh, condition atapraxis I think it was called of a, if I'm, Nick can correct me if I haven't got the name right um, uh, and at a very crucial stage in an important game during the uh, season we were on the sidelines watching in the last quarter and we had to win this game to uh, this man's second son came up to him to ask him something. Uh, and Dennis, who was the name of my assistant coach, turned to this boy and said, yes, Toby. And I was just suddenly taken out of my... And I thought the ability of this father to just suddenly respond to his child in that kind of way in this situation where I would have been disposed to impatiently dismiss it um, uh, just stayed with me. It actually made me reflect on my own way of relating to my own children and I think in some ways, I hope, um, enabled me to be more fully present to them in context in which otherwise... I'm not saying I'd been a, a bully or a brute at all in my relations with my children, but... Any of us and all of us can find our, our capacity for a kind of depth and purity, to use a, a perhaps tricky word here, responsiveness, even to those we already love very much, refined and deepened by encounters we can have in unexpected context. And I do think as a society we, we for, for various reasons that are complex and we would 
need to go into in more detail, perhaps have um, uh, taken us further away from um, important eth ethical dimensions of responsiveness to those around us. That's a, that's a big issue. Yes. Uh, Chris, there is a bit of a tendency, I think, for people to think of philosophers as people who sit in some ivory tower thinking and talking about Sartre and Plato while everybody else gets on with their lives. Um, but as I talked about a bit in the introduction, I think philosophy and ethics is very much a practical topic because it actually is about how we lead our lives. As, as a philosopher yourself, is there something you could put your finger on that if you could make, see a change in how people behave how people lead their lives. If there's something you could say, Sunday out there in Melbourne, what I'd really like to see people doing differently is, is there an answer to that question for you? Um, I don't know that there's a single answer to it. I think we, it's, it's a, a very commonplace thought. Many people have given expression to it. It's, it's a, a strange irony that the, the uh, increased power of technology which when we were children we were so were told and immediately absorbed was going to give us all more leisure time and enable us to to spend time with the people we liked in ways that uh, has proven to be a complete illusion and lives are busier in all sorts of uh, in all sorts of ways uh, hence the the current emphasis on the practice mm. of mindfulness um, I think any activity which increases Mindfulness, and it doesn't have to be a it doesn't have to be an organised therapeutic activity, uh, is really important. So downtime of all sorts of kinds um, in people's lives is is something we need a lot more of. That downtime's not it's it it must not be a matter of as it were narcissistic. This is all about me and my my downtime, uh, because we are are after all creatures whose whose being depends upon uh, our interaction with, with others uh, and only if we go out of ourselves towards others in a responsiveness uh, to them uh, can we live lives that are not shrunken and, and self-absorbed. So, so anything that increases our capacity for mindfulness in opening us to the world around us I think is, is important and, and, and the world has become such that that's an increasingly urgent Chris, we have not even scratched the surface and 20 minutes has flown by and I've got a list in my sort of uh, cortical cinema of about 100 questions I want to ask you. It's going to have to wait till later, but can we get an on-air commitment that you would think about coming back onto the show? Yeah, sure, I'd love to. Thanks, Chris. And we're also going to ask you to hang around for a little bit uh, for the rest of the show. Amazing. Oh, by the way, EpiPen, you dated yourself when my dad spoke to the lift man. <laughs> oh. haven't been lift people for a long time. Yes, the lift people. The lift people? The lift people. I remember when I was very, very small, my mum took me to Myers once and there was a person, you know, pushing the buttons. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Joining us, our regular panellists, are EpiPen. Hi, that's me. <laughs> well, see, we're, we're putting the voice to the name. See, I've just learned to do this after 22 years on radio. And um, Dr. Nicholas Carr. Yes, still here. <laughs> now, uh, oh, also uh, staying with us is uh, Professor Chris Cordner. If you could just say hi, Chris. Hi. See, name, voice. And, <laughs> and our special, special, special guest is uh, Associate Professor Brock Bastian. Now, Brock is uh, a social psychologist who has written 
just the most fascinating book called The Other Side of Happiness. And basically what you're saying in that book, Brock, is that if I slam my thumb with a hammer, get a bit of pain, that's not bad. That's actually quite good. Yeah, that's a, that's a simple way to put it, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and, and, of course, there's plenty of negative sides to slamming your thumb in a door. Yeah. But um, there's also some positive things that people haven't thought about before, and I suppose that's part of um, thinking about pain. I mean, I, I am thinking about pain slightly more broadly than thumbs in doors. Okay. Just, you know, but, um, but uh, you know, again, the, the experience of pain, and, and often it's what happens after that experience of pain where there are a number of, uh, a number of offshoots. For example, if you slam your thumb in a door, you probably will get some empathy from others around you. You might find that people connect with you as a person more, more easily because... We have a very visceral response to people when they're yeah. in pain. Um, we might even seek out social support or seek out, yeah. so, you know, seek out people in our lives, appreciate those relationships more because we know that they they help us to deal with that pain. Um, it, it, it's, interestingly, it's also a time of extreme mindfulness at that particular point in time because you're not worrying about the past or the future. Um, but of course, it's you know, it okay. seems a little strange to say that okay, I'm going to achieve mindfulness by <laughs> putting my. We're not um, suggesting this at home. No, no. <laughs> I should also point out there is a difference between pain and harm, and I think that's sometimes very much conflated. So, oh, okay. you know, it's not it's not good to harm ourselves sure, ever. Um, and pain doesn't occur just in harmful contexts. And I think that's one of the things that has made it hard to talk about pain. Is if you ask someone, "When was your last painful experience?" They'll say, "Oh, when I last, you know, put, stub my toe or yeah. you know, stay my thumb on the door." Um, but pain occurs in a lot of positive and and and, and uh, contexts, such as such as running, for example, or going mm-hmm. to the gym, or even eating hot chilli pepper or, you know, there are many, many mild experiences of pain in life that are not harmful and that's, that's I think, the, the, the key to understanding why pain can be good for us or why it's important for our happiness is that we, are, we actually seek it out frequently um, in non-harmful contexts. That's a really interesting point about eating chillies. Like often I'll, you know, be with the family, I'll be eating really hot chillies and my kids and wife will say, mm. why are you doing this to yourself? Listen, it feels really good. That's right. You know? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Well, we it don't... activates all the same, you know, <laughs> pleasure chemicals as you know, dopamine, opioids, all the rest. So you yeah. do get a you do get a sort of a, a pleasurable feeling from it. Mm. Um, but when we, we've done some research, which shows that you know, when people share the experience of eating chili together, they feel more bonded, they cooperate more in, as a group. So these even mild painful experiences, uh, you know, again, slamming a thumb in a door will bring you closer to people in that immediate environment. But so so will eating chili. So you're saying that the people that share a painful experience are galvanised by that experience? Mm, is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you see it all the time. I mean, I was living up in Brisbane during the 2011 floods, and you know, over that time, I think. Uh, not that people in Victoria perhaps know so much about the state of origin or care much about it, but, um, <laughs> but you know, Queensland had won the state of origin on multiple years and it was a great source of pride, but it didn't, it didn't trigger community in the same way that those floods did. You know, there was 55,000 people turned up to help with that, that clean-up effort. There was more people than there was jobs in cleaning up the, you know, the mess that, yeah. that, that, that was. So and that, that that was a you know that was a memory I've got of living in Brisbane where there was a real visceral sense of community that, that emerged from that. So you see these examples, you know, in in, uh, in America um, in response to September 11, volunteering across the entire country, across a range of causes, spiked. Suddenly, people sort of started coming out of their homes to help um, mm. in response to a very difficult and traumatic mm. event. But yeah. Um, Brock, I, I can imagine a, a series of my patients living with chronic pain queuing up outside wanting to throttle you yeah. um, at any <laughs> suggestion that there is something positive about their yeah. long-lived experience of severe pain. Yeah. Um, this is obviously a, a different subgroup, but 
take someone who's had a back injury and been mm. living with severe pain for a few years. Yeah. What the hell is positive about that? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And I think that that is, that is the point as well. So one of, the, one of the things is that if you need to deal or, or, or cope with something in life, if you simply see it as just bad as just a problem, as just a, a medical sort of thing that needs to be solved with, with pharmaceuticals, it gives you very, very few tools to know how to cope with that thing. So I'm certainly not saying, and, um, and, and certainly would, you know, would, would, would never say that someone with chronic pain should be glad they've got it. I mean, I, you know, I think no one need, needs to have chronic pain. But if we're going to help people with chronic pain to cope with it, then giving them a m- more nuanced view of pain, letting them see the various different sides to it, um, I think can only help because it provides more tools to cope with it with. I'm sorry, now they're all they're battering down the door to <laughs> throttle you because not only do I have chronic pain, but it's my fault that I'm experiencing it as a bad thing. If only I changed my headspace, it would be better. Well, I don't know that it's your fault. I mean, I think that's like, um, I think that's like saying to someone who comes into, you know, to, for psychological therapy, for example, that, you know, look, here's some ways to help you. And in that very same moment, it's your fault because you haven't taken up those, those mm. avenues. Mm. I think mm. providing intervention, providing tools doesn't mean that it's somebody's fault, but it does. But we, that's what we do. We provide people with tools and we need to. Yeah. I, I mean, the, I'm a very simple kind of thinker. And the way I just interpreted what you're talking about is that we are too folk we can be too focused on the biological mm. at the expense of the social, the psychological and those kind of ways of yeah. looking at things. Yeah. Chris, you had something to say? Thank you, Brock. That was really interesting. I wanted to ask whether you... whether you, Because I haven't had read your book uh, oh, yet. The Other whether Side of Happiness? Also, Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Available anyway. <laughs> um, whether you talk about what we might call mental or psychological mm. pain as well. I was thinking particularly of, not not of pains connected with mental illness, but the, the pain of grief, for example, mm. or mm. the pain of guilt or remorse. Mm. For, yeah, yeah. Um, we're, we're very naturally disposed for quite understandable reasons to think we can, as it were, get the good without the bad. Exactly. Yeah. We can love people, but... but who wants the pain of yeah. grief? Whereas, unless you're open to the pain of grief, you're not open to really being able to love fully. No, exactly. unless you're open to the pain of remorse for doing things terribly, you're not mm. not open to being fully responsive to the claims upon you yeah. uh, of, of moral yeah. demands and requirements. So, yeah. would would you see that as fitting into your uh, picture? No, absolutely. Thing? So, I, 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 I'm using pain in the broadest possible sense. Mm. You know, I think what's interesting again is that you know, if you talk about pleasure, anything can be pleasurable. You know, from from chocolate to massages to whatever else. It, it's you know, it's entirely fine that you call everything that's nice pleasurable. But when we sort of start talking about pain, we get all very narrow and, and sort of precise. And we're like, well, that's physical pain, and this is grief. And I want to talk about it in incorporating all of those things. And I think there are similarities between that. I think I loved your example of of, of love. Because, I, mean, mm. I use that myself sometimes. I think if you're going to get those things out of life, you're going to expose yourself and open yourself up to love. Then you ha- you also in that very moment open open yourself up to loss. Mm. Um, you know, if you care about someone enough and you, you, you risk the, you know, the possibility of losing them, if you're going to connect with someone, you know, in, in, in the way that you were talking about before, being present with them, you have to be present with all of them, not just the nice parts. Um, so it's a very, it's, you know, I, I think that also grounds us as well. It makes us a little more connected in that kind of grounded way. But, yeah, no, very much about um, emotional pain as well. And I think 
you know, I think if you even if you look at things like depression, anxiety, I mean, these are these are cultural problems. They're epidemics, right? I mean, it's one in four, one in five people have this now, and we're still treating it with individualised psychological therapy, with with you know, pharmacological therapy. Um, we're not we're not looking at what are the cultures that people live in and how these cultures may be responsible in part for the outbreak, the outcropping of of these this inability to deal appropriately and, and, and properly with negative emotion, which then becomes, uh, you know, a sort of mental illness in some sort of way. Do you know, I was out for my birthday dinner last night with my wife and as conversation turns, <laughs> we turned to, to, to talking about DSM-5 oh, yeah. and, yeah. and the grief criterion mm. and uh, we're both on the same page with this. But um, f- for listeners, DSM is, a, is a basically a, a, a manual that is used by a lot of psychiatrists and services and psychologists and courts, whatever, to diagnose um, uh, criteria for specific sorts of mental illnesses, depression, anxiety, and so forth. For a long time, if you were grieving, um, uh, that specifically excluded a diagnosis of depression because you're grieving and grief and depression mm. can look very similar. Mm. They're qualitatively different. Yeah. But that was removed. That grief exclusion criteria was removed in the latest edition mm. of DSM-5. Mm. And that caused all sorts of controversy mm. about it. Like, you know, and, and in fact, one of the architects of DSM wrote a beautiful article about how the grief for his wife who had recently passed away was, was terrible but it was so important for him to, to go through. It was just a normal event. This is what people do. And yeah. when we start pathologising that, yeah. that becomes a big problem. Well, exactly. So, you, you know, you look at a list of symptoms and yeah. you say, well, OK, well, this person has this list of symptoms. Now they've got a mental illness. But yeah. what you've forgotten is the context within their experiencing yeah. that set of symptoms. And, yeah. and, and that, that context is what gives meaning. And, and that, that's, you know, then, then it seems like a response to life in some sort of way as opposed to an illness. Yeah. Um, yeah I'm going to get all medical here. And I know this is... <laughs> swimming against the current but um, I think it's actually very very important we recognise that true clinical depression is a not uncommon uh, sequelae to grief and failing to recognise it has been a problem in the past. We've had people who've been seriously unwell because grief has moved into a depressive Mm -hmm. illness that's Mm. been washed aside because it's grief. You're meant to feel like Mm -hmm. that. Mm. Um, But there are clear-cut differences, and I won't go into them here, but we recognise a whole series of differences between Mm. grief in its healthier still distressing form and depression following loss which mm. has a whole series of different criteria and often do actually require different mm. treatment which may be psychological and support but may include medication so I don't want people to think that all of grief does not require some sort of medical intervention that's simply not true It's good having you on the show to, to yeah. balance things out <laughs> I, I just wanted to say it connects with Nick's point I, I think um, we're familiar with lots of recent discussions about parents cosseting their children in all sorts of ways. Every kid gets driven to their local primary school and they used to walk there and walk home. Mm. When I was, you know, nine, I was told, as I'm sure, I'm, I'm very old, of course, but I was told <laughs> to go outside and not come back till dinner time. And I'd ride my bike 15 miles away and swim in the Yarra in places with unprotected... Uh, um, yeah. And maybe that was crazy, but that's that's how I and all of my peers uh, grew up. 
we naturally want to protect our children yeah. from all sorts of things. Um, th there is our risk averseness mm. is is a serious issue because it, it's not as if one should simply dismiss it to say, well, who cares what happens to your kids? Of course we want to protect them from yeah. uh, dangers and difficulties. Uh, and in the case Nick mentioned, uh, of course we don't want people to to lapse into depression from their from their grief. Right. But if you're going to be fully open to your grief or fully open to to developing all of your human capacities in a robust kind of way, you can't but be exposed to risks of various kinds. And managing that, kind of steering a, a path between being reckless and crazy with respect to risk and simply. Uh, mm. wrapping our lives up in cotton wool so that we never experience it is one of the, the, the most perennial and difficult challenges that we face both individually and as a community. Yeah, I mean, a nice analogy there is if you think about immunisation. So, we, you know, we know that giving a small amount of a pathogen to people, you know, mm. activates the immune system to build strength and be able to cope better with that same pathogen in the future. But, you know, we, we forget in the psychological space that it works in the same way. So, you know, people do need to be exposed to these experiences. You know, kids kids are incredibly rough at each other. And my, my kids are in primary school and I'm just bringing back memories for myself. You know, the kids are really rough on each other in primary school and then you want to protect your kids from that. But it also occurs to me there's, a, there's some sort of function for this too because they're preparing each other for the world. And you, you have to sometimes go through these experiences to know how to cope with them in the future. And so... And we do want to run in there and, you know, tell all the, the, the kids off ourselves and pull our kid out and protect them and, and take them away and not let them sort of have those things. But at the same time, it, it is what's teaching them how to cope. And that's what builds resilience. That's what builds psychological strength. Um, and if you don't have those experiences, you just simply can't. It's very, very difficult to build strength if you're wrapped in cotton wool. It's, it's so true what you say, being a parent. Um, I remember my little boy when he was about four years old got knocked over by a big boy just running and he mm. fell over and he cried. And I asked him, you know, a couple of years later, do you remember that? He goes, no. And I'm still reliving it. <laughs> this is 10 years later, I'm still reliving it. Um, Brock, what, can you, what's the working wording of the expression of happiness? What, what is it? What, is there something that we can put into words about happiness? It's definition. Oh, goodness, OK. Um, well, I think, I think it's, it's not just positive feelings mm. and positive thinking. I think mm. that that's what it's not. Um, and, and, and actually, in many ways, trying to uh, define or make happiness a goal or a target, it backfires. Mm. Um, and, and so we see this frequently. Some of our own work, in fact, shows that the extent to which people think that they're expected to be happy is, is statistically speaking, quite a central feature of depression. It, it, it actually fits inside the other kinds of uh, criteria that, that represent a diagnosis of depression actually predicts those rather than is predicted by them. So the, the, the society in, that we live in is sometimes predictive of these things and that, that also comes with that, that sense that happiness is important, it's a goal we should be striving towards, it. it's a plateau we should somehow reach. And it's just it's not attainable and it's not true. Um, so, I mean, happiness probably is something which is more likely to come creeping up from behind you when you're doing something meaningful or engaging or pursuing other things in life. Um, you know, if you pursue something because you think it's going to make you happy, you will inevitably fail. So I, I think happiness is probably best left less defined. Um, and, you know, if you, if you start to feel a warm glow from doing something that was meaningful and purposeful, well, then, you know, lucky you. Um, but I think trying to define it in terms of something 
that it is is probably yeah probably a little bit problematic sometimes. I, yeah. I like to say it's the process rather than the outcome. Yeah. So yeah. it's the result of something rather than the result of going to something. Yeah. 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 And, Brock, your book only came out last week, so I haven't had a chance to read it yet, though I'll be rushing out to get my coffee as soon as we finish here. The other but, side of happiness. But if you, you the other side of happiness, available all good bookstores. Um, but if there's, a, if there's a message in there, if there's a theme in there, can you, do, can you give me a quick summary? What, what is it we take away from that book? Yeah, I, I hope a different, a different perspective on our negative experiences and, and how to achieve happiness and, and the fact that, you, you, you know, you can't have happiness unless you also have pain. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a fundamental part of what it means to live a good life um, and you need to embrace that and, and make it part of your life. And, and in the book, I, I guess I step out you know, uh, uh, some examples or a, number, a range of examples of, of why or how pain may benefit our lives. Um, not to say that that, again, outstrips its costs sometimes. Sometimes its costs are very apparent. But, but it's also good to think about this other side of it too. And, yeah, hopefully it just starts a, a discussion around um, how to think about things differently and maybe how to cope with pain differently and how to, maybe how to find happiness differently as well. Yeah. You know, what I liked about it was it wasn't like, you know... I've, I've read and looked at and, you know, prescribed a lot of self-help books, I mean, mm. generally the self-help books. And, you know, some of them are just absolutely fantastic and, you know, that they really give you good advice about how to, you know, just simple things, basically almost like first aid type things. Mm. This was a different slant. This was a different way of looking at things, I think. And as I said to you when I met you in the green room, it's, it's very synchronous with the, um, the kind of way I see the world. Mm. Now, Again, we could scratch the surface. We could spend hours talking about this. And um, can we get your commitment on here to get you back on the show? Of course. See yeah, what no, I do. I twist people's arms <laughs> psychologically. Uh, yeah. Look, uh, it's, it's been a fantastic show. By the way, listeners, if any of these issues have brought up, um, uh, or these topics have brought up issues for you, hop on to the Beyond Blue website, which is just a fantastic website. Or, of course, there's always Lifeline, which is 131114. Um, thank you. Everybody for coming to the show today. Thank you, Nurse EpiPen. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Nick. We should have a show, you know, you and me going head to head with some stuff, I reckon. I can't wait. to <laughs> start working out. Brock Bastian, thank you so much thank for you. coming in. Thank you. And uh, Chris Corner, thank you too for coming in. Thanks very much, Bill. Um, it's been an absolutely fascinating show today. We'll uh, catch up with you next week on some more radiotherapy. Cheers. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.